On episode 22 of the Think Wildlife podcast, I interview Dr. Umesh Srinivasan, who is an assistant professor at the Center for Ecological Studies at the Indian Institute of Science. There we talk about the impacts of deforestation, logging, and habitat degradation on the bird communities of the Eastern Himalayas, predominantly in Arunachal Pradesh. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's very kind of you. So much of your research has focused on the impact of logging on wildlife, particularly in the Eastern Himalayas. So how extensive is the issue of logging in this region? Uh, right now in the Northeast, logging, commercial logging or large-scale logging is no longer a problem. Uh, commercial logging was legal until 1996 when the Supreme Court banned any commercial logging. Although subsistence logging, which is uh, you know families at the village level, families uh, extracting one or two trees to build build their houses and so on. That that is still allowed. But commercial logging is no longer operational in the region. However, forest loss because of developmental activities, like the building of dams and the building of roads, that still continues. How prevalent is the issue of palm oil in the region? Well, it's beginning to take off in the region, in our natural Pradesh at least. Uh, palm oil has had a much longer history in Mizoram in Northeast India. And it looks like palm oil plantations and the experience that the Mizos have had with oil palm plantations um, has not been a very happy one. Now, in Arunachal Pradesh, palm oil expansion is in its infancy. Right now, there are three districts in which palm oil is being actively grown. But in the absence of things like Transportation, which is very, very important because the, when, you, when you harvest bulk, it needs to be milled within 48 hours. Uh, otherwise, the oil goes bad and the oil is no longer uh, useful for, uh, for any, any products. And so you need transportation and mills that are very, very close by, uh, close to each other, uh, close to uh, uh, the oil palm plantations, which it, that's infrastructure that's not yet there in our natural tradition. Another problem with oil palm in Arunachal Pradesh is that Arunachal is primarily monsoonal. Most of the rain in Arunachal falls in four months of the year. And oil palm is a fantastically thirsty plant. Every single plant needs 300 liters of water a day um, to, to be able to provide fruit, uh, to be able to fruit, uh, you know, profitably. And so in the absence of irrigation, I don't see how oil palm plantations are going to succeed in this region. Uh, it's also quite high and hilly, and oil palm does very well in the plains, but not very well in mountains. Uh, oil palm is a monoculture, and it lacks the sort of uh, heterogeneity that you see in forests or shifting cultivation landscapes. You know, a forest is very, very structurally heterogeneous. There are a number of niches. Uh, there's the understory, midstory canopy, for instance. Uh, and there's a lot of structure in the rainforest that allows species to occupy different parts of the forest and, and uh, occupy uh, different niches. Oil palm lacks that uh, diversity of structure. It's it's just just one plant grown, <laughs> you know. It it it's just hectares of land with just one plant. So it's very very uh, homogeneous when it comes to physical structure. Plus, oil palm also uh, is very very reliant on pesticides. And so, even that, uh, the lower trophic levels like arthropods, which are so important for higher trophic levels for, like birds, 
uh, are something that will probably be wiped out completely in an oil palm plantation because of the heavy use of uh, pesticides. Uh, so that's one reason that that's those are the reasons I think oil palm not very good for uh, for biodiversity at all, not very good for carbon storage either. Uh, but unlike other plantations of oil crops like say soybean or sunflower oil palm might offer a better kind of habitat for the movement of animals through it uh, animals will not be able to survive in oil palm they won't be able to reproduce in oil palm they won't be able to get their uh, requirements in oil palm but they might be able to move through oil palm plantations as opposed to oil crops that are shorter stage uh, and at this point i just want to uh, make this comparison where for a long, long time, scientists have been comparing primary forests with shifting cultivation landscapes, and then saying shifting cultivation landscapes support a lower proportion of forest-dependent species, and therefore primary forests is better than shifting cultivation. A lot of policymakers have you know, taken that finding and said shifting cultivation is useless, and therefore it's wasteland, and therefore let's we can convert it to oil palm, and we're not losing any biodiversity, which is completely false because just the heterogeneity in the shifting cultivation landscape. There's active crop, there are fallows that are three years old, five years old, 20 years old, 100 years old. There's old growth forests. All of those different habitats are configured in that landscape um, in different ways. And those different habitats at different stages of regeneration support different species. And the shifting cultivation landscape at the same time also provides you know, medicinal plants, timber, cane, food plants, the whole diversity of services to people. Which, uh, which oil palm plantations will never be able to provide. And oil palm plantations basically convert what is a very, very diverse landscape of shifting cultivation to a monoculture, cash crop oriented, more labor oriented form of production. What are some solutions to minimize the impact of palm oil plantations on wildlife? I think the most important thing is putting oil palm plantations after a great deal of thought in locations that are suitable for oil palm and are locations where biodiversity losses are going to be minimized. Now, oil palm, the plant itself, is a fantastic plant. Uh, per hectare, oil palm produces six to ten times the, the oil palm plant produces six to ten times the amount of vegetable oil than its closest competitor. Right. So, in terms of opportunities for sparing land for wildlife. Oil palm is a fantastic opportunity. It's a win-win. You plant much less to get the same amount of oil. And you're therefore locking up less land under agriculture than you would for things like soybean or sunflower or rapeseed. The important thing is to plant oil palm where it does minimum harm to biodiversity. Now, in India, we still have about 38 million hectares that are suitable for oil palm. And by the way, most of the Northeast is not suitable for oil palm, just climatically. Uh, but we have 38 million hectares that are suitable for oil palm that are not in high conservation value areas. So they're not in national parks, not in wildlife sanctuary. They're not in natural habitats like grasslands and forests. They're, these areas are not in shifting cultivation landscapes. These are the areas that have infrastructure, they have irrigation, they, you can set up mills easily. Those are the places that you should be planting oil palm, not in places like the North. You know, uh, do these regional planning exercises for planting oil palm uh, based on these considerations, then there will be minimal harm to biodiversity. And we've learned, we've learned from the experiences of Indonesia and Malaysia that, and we should not be repeating those, right? Indonesia and Malaysia 
40 to 60 percent of their oil palm comes at the expense of primary forest. Um, and we've seen what that's done to species like the orangutan and tiger. And it would be an absolute tragedy if India does not learn from the mistakes of Indonesia and Malaysia and just so now moving more towards your own research, one of your main research topics were the impacts of logging on understory bird species in tropical rainforests. So what are some of your main observations from these studies? Well, to begin with logging, selective log, this is selective logging. It's not clear cut, it's not clear cutting. So it's a form of logging where commercially important trees are removed from the forest. So it's only a subset of the trees that have been removed from the forest. These are commercially important either because of the species that provides excellent timber or because the trees are large and they provide a, a large amount of timber. Uh, one of the things that happens with logging is that the canopy opens up. You know, you don't even, you don't have a closed canopy anymore in the forest. And there's a whole lot of sunlight coming down uh, onto the forest floor because, because of the change in the structure of the forest. And when sunlight comes down to the forest floor, it does a number of things. Uh, there's a lot of understory proliferating in log forest, unlike in primary forest where there's hardly any understory. Two, uh, log forest is significantly warmer than primary forest. So because of sunlight's coming in, uh, at, at noon, at midday, log forest is on average three degrees Celsius warmer than in primary forest. And the fact that it's warmer also leads to a loss of humidity in log forest. So log forest is 20% less humid than primary forest is. Now you can imagine that all of these changes in vegetation structure and changes in just the abiotic environment, temperature, humidity, have massive impacts on um, endothermic organisms like insects and arthropods, right? So the arthropod community completely changes in primary forest, uh, uh, in log forest, sorry. The arthropod community changes in such a way that most of the arthropods that are eaten by birds, that are favored by birds, become rarer in log forests. Um, that means that very often what happens is large species can't make it in log forest because the, the absolute energetic requirements that they have, the absolute resource requirements that they have might not be met with in, in log forest. And therefore, when you have, on average, if you look at a bird community in general, smaller species tend to be more common, larger species tend to be rare. Um, and that's what's called mass abundance scaling. That's just, you know, uh, it, it, it would be on average that large species are rarer than small species. And so what you have is this with logging is that you have a further reduction in the abundances of large species uh, and, uh, and a local extinction of large species from log forests and that the forest gets dominated by smaller species. Uh, and that's what we've been seeing. With, uh, with our log forest communities, bird communities. One more of your papers, you studied the impacts of logging on morphological and behavioral correlates on long-term bird survival. So could you elaborate a bit on the subject and what the outcomes of your research were? Sure, yes. Um, what we've been doing in Arunachal Pradesh is being monitoring six log forest plots and six primary forest plots since 2011. And in these plots, what we do is we go out and place mist nets. Mist nets are these invisible, near invisible nets that we use to capture birds. And then we ring each bird with a numbered aluminium ring and then release it back into the wild. Uh, we go every year in April and May, which is the early breeding season for these birds in the Himalayas. 
and we repeat, repeat repeating this every year. Now, based on whether we are getting recaptures of birds that we have ringed in the previous year, or we are getting new captures of birds that have never been captured before, over time, what we can do is to estimate survival rates of these birds. So, what is the probability that one bird, one individual, survives from one year to the next? Or rather, what percentage of the population survives from one year to the next? So, if survival probability is 0.6, that means 60% of individuals in 2011 will survive to 2012. And so that's how we're estimating our uh, survival rates. Now, the interesting thing that we're finding when we compare primary forest and log forest is that species that forage in mixed species bird flocks can maintain survival rates in log forests, whereas species that forage alone. So if I'm a bird and I never join any other bird while feeding, I feed alone. My probability of survival declines by 30% in log forests. So it's the social birds that are that are managing to make it in log forests, but it's the solitary birds that are suffering survival declines. And we think the reason for that is um, with logging changing insect availability, for example, and it might also be changing predation pressure. It might be changing, you know, the density of predators that eat these birds. Uh, so it's changing what the birds eat. It's also changing what eats these birds. But the social species, and these are multi-species bird flocks. These are not like a flock of crows or a flock of pigeons. This is a flock of you know six or seven different species that are very, very cohesive and tight. What we think is happening here is that these flocks, the composition itself is open to being altered to match the conditions uh, in terms of predation and resource availability that are there in log forests now, the change conditions. And therefore, these birds are able to maintain survival rates. Whereas the solitary species that are just hardwired to feed alone, they can't take advantage of, of for example, joining another species and taking advantage of its uh, early warning alarm system against predators. Those species are really losing out. Those species suffer significant survival declines in log forests. What are some research uh, you're working on right now? So right now what we're doing is looking at uh, the impacts, the joint impacts of climate change and habitat degradation on birds. Um, you know, the Eastern Himalaya is warming about three times as fast as the global average. So global warming is a huge, uh, climate change is a huge problem in the Eastern Himalayas. Um, at the same time, land is being degraded, right? You have forests being degraded or, or cut up for agriculture or, or you know, other human habitation settlements and so on. What we're asking is, now we've been monitoring these birds in, in these mountains uh, for the last 12 years at, at this elevation of 2,000 meters. Now, what's happening because of climate change is that birds are moving their elevational ranges upwards. This is not migration. This is the shift in the geographical ranges of these species, presumably because as the earth warms, these birds are going to need to move to higher elevations to remain in the kind of temperatures that they're used to, that they've evolved to. And so we're seeing these upward shifts of birds in the in the uh, Himalayas. The question we're asking now is when these birds shift up, if populations move up into primary forest versus populations moving up into degraded forests, what are the consequences of these joint impacts of climate change and forest degradation? So that's what we're working on right now. So compared to habitat degradation and habitat loss, what impact does habitat fragmentation have on bird ecology? Uh, we have not really studied the impacts of fragmentation in the Eastern Himalayas. 
but of course, there's a huge body of literature on fragmentation, right? It affects things like sociality, it affects nesting success, it affects foraging behavior, it affects survival rates, it affects a huge number of things. And a lot of these studies come from uh, uh, either temperate areas or from the Amazon. And the long-running long study there is the Biological Dynamics of Forest Fragments Project, which is the BDFFP, which has given us massive insights into the way in which habitat fragmentation affects uh, birds. In the Himalayas, I would imagine that at least at low elevations, the findings that we have with fragmentation should be pretty similar to what we've seen, um, uh, what we see in the Amazon, as well as in the Western Guards. So there's a lot of work, a lot of work being done in the Western Guards by uh, Dr. T.R. Shankaraman on uh, habitat fragmentation and bird ecology, and those findings pretty much mirror what we see in the neotropics. Uh, in the Himalayas at low elevations, I suspect that we would see pretty similar patterns. But as we move up to higher elevations, I'm not really sure what the impacts of fragmentation might be. Um, often higher elevation species tend to be uh, thermal, gen uh, thermal generalists because they face a lot more seasonality at higher elevations than species at low elevation, which tend to be thermal specialists. Uh, I'm just specialist in, in, in general. So, I, I mean, I don't know is the, is the right answer, but uh, I would suspect that at higher elevations, birds might be slightly more tolerant of habitat fragmentation than birds at low elevations. So my final question for you today is that what has been your biggest learning as a conservation scientist? One of the things I think is that, you know, conservation biologists or conservation scientists um, create a wealth of information that is useful for management. It's often very difficult to have that knowledge actually inform management. Uh, and even if it does inform management, the conservation landscape changes so rapidly that your work is never finished. The work of a forest manager, the work of a, somebody who's trying to conserve biodiversity never ends. You can't say, oh, here, we, you know, we created this protected area. It's a tiger reserve now. And, you know, in perpetuity, nothing's going to happen to these tigers. No, uh, you know, when you created the tiger reserve, perhaps there was no hunting at the time. Now, suddenly there's a booming market in Vietnam for tiger parts, which now creates incentives for hunting. So you have to deal with that problem now. Then you have climate change coming in, which means that animals need to move to be able to adapt to climate change. And so now you have a new problem, uh, which is connecting the remaining patches of habitat that you have left with each other. And so I think one of the biggest learnings for me is that uh, it never ends. You know, you can't sit back and say, I've done this. And now, you know, biodiversity is protected because the, the landscape of threats uh, and the environment threats changes very, very rapidly in response to, you know, social, political, economic factors that need to be dealt with on almost, you know, a day-to-day -day basis. That, that was an interesting insight. So that was my final question for the interviews. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much, Anish. Pleasure speaking to you as well.